0: The mystery of evil. The problem of evil is one of the great and difficult questions. It's sometimes referred to under the title uh, the Mysterium Iniquitatis, which actually is a scripture quotation from St. Paul from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, talking about the, working, the mysterious workings of the Antichrist in creation. So from that, there's been some reflection on the mystery of iniquity. So to speak about evil as a mystery. Okay, evil is mysterious. But it's mysterious in a way different from the mysteries of the Christian faith, I would suggest. Why? Because the mysteries of the faith are mysteries of light. They are things intelligible in themselves, like the triune God, or the incarnation of the word of God that that the Son of God is true God and true man. These are mysteries that are intelligible in themselves, but that are above us. And so we can, in some measure, enter into them and understand them in some way, even though we can't exhaust them. But they're intelligible of themselves. But evil is a mystery that is not intelligible of itself. It's a dark mystery, We can't get to the bottom of it, we can't offer a complete explanation for it, not because it's above us, but in a certain way because it's below us, because it's dark of itself, it's opaque, for reasons that I'll explain in a moment, ultimately because it has to do with non-being, and only being is intelligible. Evil is also sometimes posed as an objection to the existence of God, and maybe some of you have come here wanting to talk about that, and if, you, if you'd like to, I'd be very happy to, to talk about uh, that philosophical argument. So the, the objection runs something like this, perhaps you've heard it before. If God exists, we suppose that he's perfectly good and omnipotent, all-powerful, but a perfectly good and omnipotent God would eliminate evil insofar as he can. But we see evil in the world, therefore, the argument would conclude, God must not exist, or at least an, un, an omnipotent and good God must not exist. So many philosophers have taken up this question, and I think that there are actually really good philosophical responses to this argument that I think rebut the argument uh, fully ad- in a fully adequate way, that show that it's possible to understand in some measure the existence of evil in the world and the existence of an omnipotent and good God. But one of the reasons why I don't propose to jump right into the philosophical debate about this is that I think it's actually very important to see the big picture on the question of evil, and sometimes philosophical discussions of this question get too much into the weeds, and even if they're accurate in what they say, they may give us a kind of distorted picture of the whole. A little bit like the way you can have a very accurate map of the city of Boston spread out on, on a two dimensional table. But if you try to zoom out and zoom out and you zoom out far enough, a two dimensional surface is going to distort a map of the surface of the Earth because the Earth is a globe. So we're all familiar with that. You need to have the right, uh, the right perspective on the, re- the whole of the reality. And then I think it's better to come back and deal with the small, uh, the more precise questions. I think, therefore, St. Augustine is a good place to start when talking about the problem of evil. Uh, It's a good place to start because he he really wrestled with the problem of evil, and not just in an academic way, but in an existential way, in a personal way. How many of you have read Augustine's Confessions? So many of you have have read it. So you know that... um, his own personal story is intertwined with the question about what is evil and what is good. So he got involved with a Gnostic sect called the Manichees, and the Manichees thought that there were two principles in the cosmos, one a good principle, another an evil principle, and that the material world in a certain way resulted from a conflict between them. So on this view the material creation, the world that we live in, is evil in a certain sense and needs to be escaped. And evil is a positive reality that is responsible for, like the evil god or the evil principle is responsible for the evil that we see in the world. Now Augustine obviously is a brilliant genius, one of the great minds that history has seen. And he came to grips with the inadequacy of this explanation over time. And he found it deeply unsatisfying. He began to pose philosophical objections to it. The Manichae preachers could not answer his questions. And gradually, he was able to escape what he saw as the deep error in their views. But there was another struggle inside Augustine. And if you read the Confessions, you also know that it wasn't just about the idea of evil. It was also about his own proneness to evil. So he experienced in himself a kind of inclination towards things that he knew were wrong and that he didn't want to do and yet he didn't know how to escape doing them. He found himself falling back into them even though he didn't want to do them. So the problem of evil for Augustine also is extremely personal. In the Confessions, maybe you remember this, he has a fascinating passage about his life as a baby you know, it's like an odd autobiography, begins like, when I was a baby, I cried, <laughs> you know, uh, and he thought that that was a bad thing. Um, he talks about how selfish he was, you know, he says, I don't remember it, but I saw other baby. I see other babies, and I see what they do. Uh, he sees these babies as behaving, like, irrationally, they're, they're, uh, they're making a fuss, they get angry, and he says, this already shows you, basically, that something has gone wrong with us from the very start. So actually, that's in a certain way, that's a very pessimistic view of of us. Um, You know, like, babies are not innocent, according to Augustine. Uh, Well, actually, if if you accept the Christian teaching on original sin, there's, I mean, in fact, that's part of what Augustine is trying to bring out. So the struggle that we face in our own hearts about evil, in a certain way, has its origin even before we are born. We are born into... Something that has gone wrong in the universe, where does that come from, and why do we confront it? Okay, but the wonderful thing that you get also from reading Augustine is not only this rich reflection on the problem of evil, but also on the goodness of God. And that is the bigger picture. You know, I, I want to zoom out from the map and see the globe. And what do we get when you, when you get the more global perspective on this? It's that God is good, and is the only source of being. So all that is comes from God, and God is perfectly good. So the infinite goodness and generosity of God, I think this is the start, the right starting point for a properly Christian reflection on the mystery of evil. So God, unlike the Manichaean belief, Christians do not think that the world results from a conflict between a primordial good and evil principle. There's only one principle, and it is God, who is perfectly good. God creates the world not out of evil matter, as the Manichees might have claimed, but out of nothing. Why did God create? Well, here, the Christian answer is he had no need to create because he is perfect in himself, So God gets nothing more out of creation than he already has. It's very mysterious to think about, but in a certain sense, God plus the world is not greater than God. So what is happening in the Christian understanding of creation? God is creating out of nothing. Where there was nothing, he creates something Why? In order to share in his goodness. So he is so good that he, as it were, propagates goodness. And propagates goodness in a way that surpasses our capacity for understanding. Because the idea of nothing and something coming from nothing is very, uh, it boggles our minds. God is so good that he desires to create other beings to share his goodness. So in the end, why is there something rather than nothing? The Christian answer is, it's because God is good. And why does God love us? Why does he love you? Well, here actually, also a very important answer. He does not love you because you are good, uh, which is often the mistake that we make. We, we think that I need to be good so that God would love me. But it's the opposite. God loves you because he is good. And he wants to share his goodness with you. That's why he created you. And so God's love will make you good. So it's actually a very happy fact that even when we are not good, God still loves us because he is good. Because his love for us does not depend on our being good. It's the reverse. Our being good depends on the fact that he loves us. He loves us into existence. And he gives us graces in order to give us a greater share in his goodness. So this is actually the story of the world that is the right context to set the problem of evil in. God's will is the reason you find anything at all. And even more is the reason why there's goodness. And insofar as something exists, it is good, and it's good because God willed it into existence out of love, out of a desire to share his goodness with creatures. Okay, another step to go in this is that God creates a variegated creation. So he doesn't just create one species of being. He's so good that he creates many, many different kinds of beings. And beings... He So when Aquinas analyzes this in uh, the first part of the Summa, he says, you know, uh, we can distinguish beings based on, like, material divisions. Like, we've got a bunch of rational animals in this room. You know, that's the way Aquinas would define what a human being is, a rational animal. So we're animals. We're rational animals. We've got a bunch of rational animals in this room. We all have the same essence or form. What distinguishes us is, you know, like I'm over here and you're over there. I have my body, this body, made from this matter, or constituted with this matter, and you have your, your body constituted with, with that matter. So there's a variety among us, but not a variety of form, it's a variety of, in fact it's, it's we're distinguished by the matter that our bodies are constituted from. Uh, but there's an infinite variety of forms also, like we have, uh, we have subatomic particles, we have rocks, and uh, minerals, we've got all kinds of uh, vegetation. We've got microbes. We've got animals. We've got human beings. We've got angels, which are pure, uh, pure forms. And he says that the infinite perfection of God is shown better; that the, the fullness of God's being and goodness are shown more clearly by creating a hierarchy of beings. Okay, why are we talking about this in a talk on evil? Because it means that creation is not equal. All creatures are not equal. There are higher creatures and there are lower creatures. So God wants each creature to be in its place. And it's okay that there are inequalities in creation. We don't have to say that everything receives the same amount of uh, perfection or, or goodness, the same imitation of God. But each thing is good insofar as it is what it is. So that's actually an important part of the puzzle of trying to understand how we find evil in creation or evil in the world, what we understand to be evil. And you'll see where I'm going with this in just a second. But before I get there, let me say a word about what is good, because it's better to, to understand evil having already spoken for a moment about goodness. Under the, th- the influence of modern theories, we may be tempted to think that good is defined by like obeying the law or obeying the moral commandments, something like that. That's what makes you good. Uh, but this is not Aquinas' view, nor is it Augustine's view. It's not the classical view of an understanding of good and evil. Aquinas, in fact, doesn't even give a definition of good. Why? Because he thought it was a primary notion. He thought you could only describe it by looking at its effects. So he says the good moves the appetite. So he describes it as what all desire. The good is desirable. So the good is what arouses our love or our desire. It's what we thirst for or reach out for. And from that then, he sees the good as something, in a, in a, there's a kind of second way that he describes it, as a perfection. So, as a thing seeks its perfection, it seeks its good. So, God creates a, a vast array of beings. Each of them has a kind of dynamic movement towards its perfection, which is the seeking out of its good. And thus, there's a third way to talk about the good, which is it's an end, something that you're moving towards. And so it has to do with the perfection of the thing when we're talking about goodness, like what makes a, uh, a good, well, we can talk about good in, in many different ways. I, maybe I should uh, hold myself back from going too far in this direction because our topic is evil. Okay, so let's talk about that. What then is evil? So we can start with evil taken in the most general sense. Aquinas follows Augustine's great insight when he rejected the Manichees in grasping that evil is not a positive reality. This is extremely important, foundational. Perhaps it's obvious to you. Uh, But let me just explain it briefly. Evil is an absence. So it it deals with non-being. And more specifically, Aquinas identifies it as a privation. Okay, A privation is different from simple non-being. Before creation, there was non-being, but there wasn't privation or evil. A privation is a lack of what should be there. So, uh, if you think about a, a dog, a dog normally should have the power of sight. So that a dog lacks the power of reason, we don't consider a privation because dogs, it's not part of dog nature to have the power of reason. But if a dog were to lack the power of sight, we would say that there was a privation of what ought to be there. So blindness in a dog is a privation. And in a certain sense, then, we can talk about it as an evil for this dog. Whereas not being uh, able to get into Harvard is not an evil for the dog. It's just the way dogs are, right? So Gnosticism and Manichaeanism did not understand this, and posited evil as a positive reality. But that's precisely uh, what will get you into all kinds of puzzles. Okay, so evil in this most general sense, uh, as a privation, thus stands between being and non-being. It has to have a subject, which is a being. So this is a further helpful clarification to, to grasp. So evil is only found in something that is. So, in other words, to have an evil at all, you have to have a being capable of having a hole in it. So, uh, suppose I were to um, try to illustrate this by drawing a circle. So I I say, okay, I'm going to. We're talking about the problem of evil. I'm going to draw a circle, and I only get to there. Okay, so uh, you might say, hey. That's a bad circle. Uh, Why? Well, part of it is missing. And you're pointing out a privation. It's something that ought to be there, but it's not there. Okay, so there's a defect in the circle. Generally speaking, that's an evil, okay, In, in a kind of generic sense. However, it also would be useful to know why that circle has this defect. In order to make a judgment about whether I have just introduced a, an evil into the world, is that a morally bad act? You know, have I done something wrong here? Um, wouldn't it have been better if I'd caused the whole circle to exist? Well, in general, the answer to that is yes. But maybe there was a good reason why I didn't make the whole circle to exist, uh, because I was trying to teach a class on what a privation is. Okay, so in that case, the defective circle might be an essential part of some larger project. And that larger project is aiming at a good. What's the good? Bringing a whole room of people to understand the mystery of the problem of evil. Okay, that's how Aquinas approaches the problem of evil. God created a changeable world of material things with all kinds of variety and distinctions among beings. And that's a great good, a very great good. In order for this world to exist, however, especially a world of plants and animals and minerals and rational animals like us, in order for this world to exist, it's necessary that things come into existence and then go out of existence. Plants grow, they die, they decay. Animals are born, then they die. Gazelles eat plants. You know, there's a lot of plant death going out there in the animal kingdom. You know, the the cute little rabbit is killing the carrot all the time. There's lots of carrot death. Um, And, you know, the lions come along and they eat the gazelles. The bald eagle swoops down and grabs the rabbit. Okay, so if we're to have a creation that reflects God's perfection by a wonderful diversity of plant and animal life, Aquinas thinks there simply is going to be this kind of corruption and generation, so carrots are good, and they're even better when they play their role in the whole ecosystem. Even if it's an evil for this carrot to be killed, right? The carrot, if it could think, would probably uh, try to avoid that. Um, okay. Now we're not usually too worried about carrot death. Um, however, animal death usually does arouse some real concern. Okay, and the, the story is something like that with animals too, uh, but there's some variation there. What? Well, take a gazelle, right? Okay, the gazelle is good. It's a, insofar as it's an animal, it has sense powers, and that's part of what it means to be an animal, right? You have sense powers, you can move around, you seek what is uh, desirable, the animal seeks what it's, what's a appetable for it or desirable for it, and it avoids dangers and pain. Okay, so the the ability to feel sense pleasure and also sense pain is good for the gazelle. It's also good for us. I mean, in fact, um, I understand that there's a severe disorder where a human person um, ceases to be able to feel pain, and actually this is a very grave uh, problem for the health of the body because you don't know when you're injuring yourself. So it's actually, pain is important for our our organic bodily life. Okay, so it's good for the gazelle to be able to feel, sense pleasure, and sense pain. Now it's evil and painful for the gazelle to get eaten by a lion. But this is a necessary feature of the goodness of the gazelle. And its place in the whole ecosystem. So when you set the gazelle like in isolation, you say, yeah, the the pain of being eaten is evil. But when you see that in the context of the larger ecosystem, you say, well, I see what purpose that is serving. So it's a concomitant feature of the good of the whole ecosystem that you have animals that can actually experience pain. So this is, I think, how Aquinas would account for that issue. He would say, yes, we can understand it as an evil that animals... Uh, feel pain. But we see the good that it's serving, and in fact it's just a feature of this kind of cosmos. So insofar as this kind of cosmos is good as a whole, then this is a, a kind of necessary accident, accidental feature of the system that the gazelle will in, feel pain when it's eaten by the lion. So Aquinas calls the gazelle's death a natural evil. So if we were to classify the kinds of evil, uh, they fall into three major categories. And category one is natural evil. And he sees that in, in a, uh, a larger context of um, the whole ecosystem. Uh, but when we're talking about the evil that human beings experience, Aquinas no longer speaks in this category of natural evil. There are two unique types of evil that pertain to the rational creature, Uh, and especially the rational and free creature. So freedom is a feature of uh, being rational. And they are, uh, it's called the evil of, I'm going to write the Latin up here, pena. Pena is the root word that we use for uh, penalty, also punishment, penance, and pain. Okay, so the Latin word there uh, could be translated the evil of pain or the evil of penalty or the evil of punishment. And then number three, the third category, the evil of culpa. That's the Latin word, which is usually translated as fault or guilt. OK, so how to illustrate these. Now these these two only, these latter two only apply to the rational creature. So an example, suppose Billy the kid uh, wakes up late for work. He doesn't have a horse, so he steals his neighbors. OK, this is bad, right? This is an evil. Uh, it's bad. Of course, it's bad for his neighbor who loses his horse. But even more, it's bad for Billy, who has willfully refused to do what right reason commands him to do, and has committed a serious injustice, an act unworthy of a human person. Okay, This is what Aquinas calls the evil of fault, or guilt, the evil of culpa. That willful bad act that that, uh, that Billy has engaged in, it's a kind of moral suicide, actually. Okay, arrested by the sheriff, Billy is sentenced to prison. Okay, this too is an evil. It's an evil for Billy. He's now deprived of his freedom of movement. But this second evil, being in prison, is not the same kind of evil as the first. It's an evil Billy suffers in response to an evil that he committed, and it's called the evil of penalty or punishment, pena. Okay, so that's... the second category up there. Okay, how to compare these two evils? The evil of fault is worse. Why? Because by his, by his free act, Billy has chosen to deform himself morally to make himself bad, to make himself a bad man. So he's turned himself away from what is truly good towards something that is only apparently good, getting to work on time, without regard for the property rights of his neighbor. So Billy is making himself bad by this act. And Aquinas would say his fault is a kind of stain. It's like a stain on his soul. In contrast, the punishment that Billy receives, while an evil for him in one sense, actually is good. It's good and just. And it can help Billy become good especially when he accepts it and offers it in reparation for his fault. Now, at the Dominican House of Studies, we recently had a thief come by and break into the cars in the parking lot. And one of the Thomistic Institute employees had a laptop stolen out of the car. You know, this young married guy, two windows smashed, insurance isn't gonna cover it. You know, this is a loss on the order of $1,500. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the kind of thing that really makes you both kind of sick and angry when that sort of thing happens. So actually, it's just and good for us to want the thief to be apprehended and even punished, and it's also good for the thief to be punished. Uh, Now, it's not probably experienced as pleasant, but why is it good? It's good because there's some restoration of the disorder of the injustice that the thief caused that is now being remedied by by the punishment. Okay, so actually um, Aquinas classifies every external and involuntary suffering that a human being encounters in the category of pena, punishment or penalty, including things like sickness and death. So when when you look at this from Aquinas' theological perspective, this makes actually good sense. God created our first parents in grace, in friendship with God. They received, as a fruit of this grace, the special privilege of being free from illness, suffering, and death. So suffering and death were not part of God's original intention or his original plan for the creation. They only entered the world as a result of the sin of our first parents. And we inherit the terrible consequences of this original sin. Just like a baby born to a mother who's, say, a heroin addict will inherit the consequences of the mother's addiction. So the baby didn't do anything wrong at all, and yet inherits these uh, terrible health consequences. Now, actually, this distinction between Pena and culpa, so that Adam and Eve, or our first parents, their fall incurs the the evil of guilt of culpa, and also all of the penalties that follow from it, like sin and the possibility of human suffering. So Aquinas thinks that everything that we encounter in the world is, uh, you know, like the suffering of a a person who's um, born with a disease or who develops a disease over time, or even the fact that we encounter bodily death. This is all an evil which is in the category of pena. It's not an evil absolutely speaking. It's only a relative uh, evil as long as we are able to direct ourselves to God. The real problem, the real problem of evil is trying to figure out what to do with the evil of culpa. Let me just give you a very brief excursus though on the importance of this distinction between pena and culpa which um, If you are uh, Catholic or you've heard about the Catholic teaching on the sacrament of penance or on purgatory, it's actually very interesting. So this is like a little footnote to the talk. So every time you commit a wrong, there's two dimensions of that wrong. So um, Professor Vermeule is here in the front row. Suppose I were to surreptitiously steal $20 from Professor Vermeule. We're friends, but that's not the kind of act that a friend would engage in, right? So when he discovers this, he's going to be angry, and it will, in in fact, rupture our friendship in some measure. Okay, so I go to him and I say, Professor Vermeule, I confess I stole $20 from you. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Okay, just by saying that, I'm not able to restore the friendship yet. It's important for me to say that, but also something needs to come from his side to forgive me so that that reconciliation of the relationship is a two-way street right this is kind of obvious so suppose he forgives me okay what has he done if we're speaking about the various evils that we're talking about he has forgiven the guilt that i have so which is in a way the alienation of my relationship with him so he's restored me to friendship so the guilt is forgiven however i still owe him twenty dollars so the $20 is in a way the, the consequence of the rupture of friendship, the injustice that I did, has this effect which in this case is very easy to measure because it's a, a sum of money. Uh, so we can say, well, I owe still $20 to him. So there is still something more to pay after he forgives the guilt. And we can imagine the case where these two things could be separated you know, where I might not have the money to pay. And so then suppose Kevin says, well, you know, I liked Father Legg's talk on the problem of evil, so I will pay on his behalf. So this restores the balance of justice, it repays what I owe to Professor Vermeule, and it's because my friend, out of love for me, did something, did a kindness to me. Okay, this is actually the Catholic understanding of what's happening in uh, purgatory and satisfaction and also the sacrament of penance. When you go to the sacrament of penance and you confess your sins, the priest absolves you. Okay, what happens there? He gets rid of all of the guilt. The culpa is completely gone. All of your sins completely forgiven. And then what does he do? He gives you a penance. Well, that's a pena, right? That's, he's imposing a penalty, which you are supposed to do to in some way make at least a gesture of making up for the disorder that your wrong act caused. So, your being forgiven does not depend on you doing the penance. You don't earn your forgiveness. The forgiveness is imparted through the merits of Christ absolutely freely. But you do, it is good for you to make up as best as you can after the culpa has been forgiven some of the pain, some of the wrong that you have caused in the world. And in fact, the understanding of purgatory is that the souls in purgatory have all been forgiven of the culpa You cannot make it to purgatory if there's any stain of guilt on your soul. You must be in a state of grace. But when you die, it may be that there's a whole lot of disorder that you have not really worked out or made up for in your life. And it's by way of mercy that God gives you an opportunity, even after death, in a certain way to make full satisfaction, uh, to be purified fully of that the pena that remains. And it's even possible for someone you love to offer up a sacrifice on your behalf in order to repay some of that debt. So, anyway, end of of footnote about the types of evil and how that enters into this larger picture. Okay, back to our subject. What is the cause of evil if we understand evil in these three senses? And is God responsible for it? Okay, so... Here's how a Thomistic answer would go. Generally speaking, because evil is a privation, it's the absence of what should be there, it doesn't have a direct cause or a per se cause. right? Just as the gap in the circle was not caused. Actually, the gap is precisely was not caused. So it's not as if I introduced a positive reality into the circle which blotted part of it out. I simply didn't complete the circle. So evil only ever has an indirect cause, what Aquinas calls a pair accidents cause. So God causes the being and the goodness of what is there, but he never positively wills the absence for its own sake. He does, in some cases, permit an absence to enter. And why? For the sake of some larger project, like teaching people what a privation is. So he permits evil to enter into the whole only as a kind of side effect or concomitant feature of some other good that he wills. So we can see this most easily in the case of natural evils, and I think we've already talked about that, right? The the carrot gets eaten by the, uh, by the rabbit, and that's a natural evil. Okay, but what about the, the case of the evil of fault or of guilt, the evil of culpa? This is the harder case. It's known as moral evil. And in a certain way, that's the, the, the harder answer to give. Aquinas would say God is in no way the cause of this moral evil, of this fault. And he does not will it to exist. So, God never wills the evil of sin or fault. Sin is our fault, not God's. And it arises when free creatures, like human beings or like angels, willfully choose some partial good contrary to the order of right reason, not caring about or not paying attention to the disorder or the damage that will result from that choice. And God He foresees that the creature will do this and he permits the creature to do it, but he doesn't cause the creature to do it. Okay, so this is mysterious. We can talk more about this in the Q&A if you like. But God does will the punishment that follows from this moral evil. Why? Because he wills the reordering uh, of things back to Uh, in the order of justice and ultimately the the ordering of things back to himself and he wants to correct the wrongdoer very much like a judge and you know good upstanding citizens will that a criminal be captured and uh, punished in some measure given a just punishment Okay, now let me pose an even harder question than this question about the, the existence of moral evil which is already a pretty hard one so we're entering deep waters, and we've been here for a little while, so I'm just going to sketch kind a of brief answer here. Why does God permit the suffering of the innocent? OK, that's often the, the most difficult question. So human suffering, bodily death, undergoing injustice and persecution, these are very real and very terrible evils. So Aquinas would say they are not part of God's original plan for us. He created our first parents in grace, and he did not want sin to enter into the picture. So these things enter into the picture only after sin. And they are a kind of penalty that we suffer because of the fall of our first parents. So when you find, say, disease even among innocent babies, or in Augustine's view, you know, relatively innocent babies, um, <laughs> When you find that disease, uh, what you are finding is the, the result of some previous moral evil, which was not part of God's plan, but which he permits to exist. But even more importantly, it's possible for this pena to redound to the good. Why is that? It's because the goods of this world including the goods of our bodily life, are lower to, lower than, and relative to, the higher goods of the spiritual realm, and in fact, the eternal goods of heaven. Okay, so things in this higher realm, like the good of virtue, or the good of your soul, uh, are always to be preferred to the bodily goods that we may have to sacrifice. And, in fact, you can even see in some way what God might be up to in this insofar as, for example, an act of merciful forgiveness or compassion by a human person towards another is an imitation of God's own attributes of mercy, uh, forgiveness, and compassion. So when one of you makes an act of mercy in forgiving someone who has wronged you, you are, in a certain way, being more like God than, than at other times in your life. And the good of this very high and noble act can only come about if there has been a sin. Likewise, the good of fortitude, of bravery, of, being, of sacrificing something very noble Or something even higher, those kinds of acts, which might be kind of the most morally noble acts that a human being can can commit, they presuppose that there has been some danger or threat or possibility of suffering. So it may be we may be able to begin to catch a glimpse of why God permits these things that seem so evil to us. Now here, it does require, I think, a theological or even a graced understanding of the cosmos. Why do I say that? Because if you don't understand the high goodness of the highest things, of the spiritual things, the goodness of God, the possibility of life with God, the possibility of tremendous human virtue and sanctity, then you will not appreciate the value of those acts and therefore why this evil would be tolerated in a certain sense by God or permitted by him. But when you begin to appreciate kind of the upper range of what human life is supposed to be capable of, then you, we begin to at least have some glimpse that God is up to something much, much bigger and more beautiful than we can grasp. Okay, so um, let me conclude by asking perhaps the most difficult question. Why does sin exist? Why does this moral evil uh, exist? Some have answered this question using the so-called free will defense. If God allows free creatures, then it means that he permits us to choose evil. And therefore, freedom has a kind of negative possibility or built into the system with free creatures is going to be that some creatures will sin. Uh, actually. This is not Aquinas' view. So there are other Christians who hold this view, uh, other Catholic theologians who hold this view, but it is not Aquinas's. Why? Because he thinks that God actually can cooperate, work within your freedom, work within your will, so that you will not sin. So he can move you freely to the good. Okay, that's another very big discussion which we don't have time to uh, get to the bottom of here but if you want you can ask some questions about it Um, basically God can work because he is the author of our natures he can move our natures towards what is genuinely perfected of us and we don't experience this as constraining our freedom but precisely as liberating us so it's because what 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 God is doing is he is in a way, illuminating for us what is good for us. And he's helping us to choose it. Something like St. Augustine experienced when he saw a division in his own heart and an incapacity to choose what he knew was good. He experienced that as a kind of slavery. And when God's grace comes to him and liberates him from these uh, unworthy desires... Now he experiences it as liberation. So God's movement, when he frees us from what constrains our ability to choose what is truly good for us, and helps us to choose what is actually good for us, we experience that as actually freeing and the summit of our freedom. So in the end, uh, why does God permit evil? Uh, I think we can summarize this by saying, giving sort of two answers first he only permits it for the sake of some much better and higher good including not only our individual good but the good of the whole creation okay this is mysterious to us because we can't see the whole and we can't conceive very easily of how permitting this sin is going to lead to good for the whole But we know that it's true that God, being infinitely powerful and infinitely good, is able to bring an even greater good out of every evil that he permits. We also know that that our understanding is very finite, that we're kind of like a baby with a soiled diaper who is crying when uh, her father makes her take a bath. Right? Um, The baby doesn't understand that the Father is doing an act of love. It's just experienced as a kind of pointless suffering. Well, maybe this is actually what God is doing with us. We don't understand what this suffering is for. Okay, but the second, and I think in a certain way more beautiful answer, is that God allows the defect of sin so that he can manifest his goodness in an even greater way as our Savior. So Aquinas says this very explicitly. This is a beautiful, it's a high truth. It can be hard for our minds to grasp. But it reaches its pinnacle on the cross. Okay, so this takes us back to the big picture that I wanted to start with. We can zoom in on the problem of evil and try and understand how to justify it. But the big picture is that God has created the universe out of nothing. And when evil has entered into the universe, he comes into the world in order to take on all of the pena of sin, all of the pena of evil in the world, on his own shoulders, and bear it so that the culpa could be forgiven. So he he may allow us to continue to experience also some of the pena, but he does not want us to experience any of the culpa. Why is that? Because he wants us to be his friends, and he wants us to live in his eternal life and share his eternal love. So he takes upon his human shoulders the whole weight of our sin and bears them through terrible suffering even unto death precisely so that his redeeming mercy and love for sinners who are not good would shine out more clearly so that they would become good by the gift of his love. So with that, uh, I'll stop. Thank you.